I am uh, Rasul, one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you are here um, as we kick off a new series called The Blessed Alliance, Men and Women Working Together. And you know, it's interesting, uh, it's a, it's a particu- particularly kind of almost controversial idea and message in today's world to talk about a blessed alliance of men and women. I mean, our headlines are just saturated with bad news as it relates to ways in which uh, women have been victims of sexual assault or inequality in the workplace. And all over the world, there's this epidemic. And yet at the same time, we also see that more and more men are feeling displaced and as the economy shifts and education shifts and all of these different things, but there's a overwhelming sense of uh, discontent and even a sense of competition, a battle of the sexes, not so much a blessed alliance. And, you know, I get to see this often. I, for, the, for a while, ever since I've had my locks, I've had this very unique experience of going to a hair salon to kind of get my locks tightened up and then going to a barber shop to hang out with the fellas to get a beard trimmed up. Now, it's two completely different environments, right? So yesterday, um, I, you know, I'm at the salon, and, and the types of conversations that you hear are completely different. Um, and I get to be like a fly on the wall in both environments, so it's very interesting. So I go to the salon, and as I'm there, there's a woman who is a uh, plus-size model, and she's sharing about how the frustration and the difficulty it is for her to, uh, to do what she does to, to find work as an actress and a model because of societal uh, expectations about what a woman should look like. And this is just a conversation that I'm walking into and listening to. And then I go to the barbershop with the fellas, and I'm hearing this frustration as uh, the dude who's cutting hair is talking about how he walks into a subway car, and all of a sudden, women start clutching their purses. And he's like, look, sis, I just got off work. Like, I'm, <laughs> I don't want anything from you. And, and, and so, and then not only that, but the sense of distrust on either side. There was about a 20-minute debate at the barbershop about if this woman came up to a dude to, bar, to ask for a Lucy cigarette, whether she was really trying to get a Lucy or really trying to get a hookup with him. This was a 20-minute debate in the barbershop. And so even this context of trust and what are people's intentions and motives come to play. But of course, we don't have those problems at the church, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, far too often, these, these uh, suspicions and these ideas and these tensions seep into the body of Christ. And what does God have to say about this? Unfortunately, far too often when the topic of gender and men and women are brought up in a Christian context, in a church context, it seems to shrink into this notion of what women can and cannot do. And that's all that people seem to be interested in talking about. So I'm gonna give you a little spoiler alert that this is not that message. This is a broader concept and a broader idea about what is God's initial and his broader vision for what he wants to do with men and women. Because if we got to take it back to the beginning and realize God did create these distinctions. And why did he do that? Well, we're talking about this blessed alliance because we believe that God has done it with an ingenious and an incredible plan in mind 
that goes far beyond what our current world sees and debates about on a regular basis. See, if we talk about who's in charge, then we're missing the point. Uh, Carolyn Custis James, she's an author and a professor uh, in Philadelphia. She has um, done a lot of writing on this topic, and it's been really helpful for me to understand. And this is essentially like a summary statement of how she would define the Blessed Alliance. The Blessed Alliance is God's plan, his kingdom agenda for male and female image bearers to serve him together in every sphere of life. God's plan for male and female image bearers to serve him together. Everybody say together. Together in every sphere of life. So it answers bigger questions and deals with a bigger idea of what was God up to. And so in order to kind of break that down, and so we're going to have this four-part uh, series and we're going to look at all the implications of what this means for the Blessed Alliance in ministry and in life and, in, and just as we go as singles, as marrieds, at, in the, on the job, and really have a dialogue about that. So today, I'm kind of just trying to set the table. And the first point is that the Blessed Alliance is God's plan to bless the world, to hook us up with his original intent and goodness. Now... I said we're going back to the beginning, literally the first verse in the Bible. The first verse kind of acts as a trailer in the movie. You know how you go to the you know, you, movies and you hear the trailer and it's like, in a world that's void and desperate for change, someone enters in and changes things. This is kind of that, that, that picture that we get, but it's a trailer. It's a summary statement of what's about to come for the next really in the immediate sense, two chapters, but in a broader sense, the entirety of the book until we get to the book of Revelation. And it simply states, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This sets up what's about to be unveiled and explained throughout the next uh, verses, throughout the uh, first chapter of Genesis. And then in the second chapter, it kind of double clicks on the sixth day and, and act focuses on that in this aspect of creation. But we have to start there and explain there because the first thing that we see is God is a creative God. He is an artist who rolls up his sleeves and creates. And, and the amazing thing about the, the way that the creation account breaks down creation, and if, if you go too fast through it, you miss it, it says that let us, let there be light. And there was. And then it, then it talks about, well, let there be a space between the water above and the water below, and there's sky, and there's the sea. And then he says, well, let there be land. In the first three days, what he's doing is he's setting up the environment for the relationships that are follow. So then in the second three days, you see, let there be birds to inhabit the sky, or actually the stars in the sky, in the heavens. Then let there be birds in the air and fish in the sea. Let there be animals and let them walk and crawl. And all of a sudden, though, in day six, it really starts to get good. In day six, in Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, first of all, just to, we're going to go a couple times into the Hebrew. I'm not trying to be impressive, but we have to kind of get into the actual words in order to understand what it's saying. And when the word Adam has the definite article in it in the Hebrew, it's actually speaking to all of humanity. So that when it says, let us make man, he's not talking about men as in the, you know, as opposed to women. He's talking about humanity collectively, which is why it says they will rule, plural, not singular. So he sets this up and look at what, it's amazing when you read the creation account because up until this point, it just says, let there be. It just speaks and then there's created things that emerge. And when he creates other living beings, it says, let us make them according to their kind. So fish make fish, birds, you know, birds, you know, bears, bears, right? But when he gets to humanity, it changes the script. It doesn't say according to their kind. It says according to our likeness. It changes it up. But then it also says, it it emphasizes, look how many times there's this repetition in the image, in his own image, he created him in the image of God. This is what in Latin is referred to as the imago Dei. And what is built into it is vested into this, all this meaning to say that we are meant to be reflections of God in his personhood in a way that's distinct and more dynamic than anything else God has created in all of creation. So much so that we get an extra chapter to talk about it in Genesis chapter 2. To see these masterpieces that happen. So in Genesis 2.18 it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So what we see is that in two, it, it kind of hones in and, and double clicks on Adam. And you see that Adam is made first. And then Adam is, you know, naming animals and things. And, and, and God is like creating, oh, this is so good. He's creating an awareness in Adam that something's missing. He's like, wait, you know, so I see the 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 male duck and the female duck, and I see the male horse and the female. And then it says, so then it surfaces the summary of what Adam is experiencing and what his reality is. And for the first time in all of creation, it is not good. When you look at the other days after he finished, it was good. And there was light and there was day and it was good. And, and all of a sudden, it is not good for man to be alone. This is not a complete reflection and an and, and, and image of me yet. It is incomplete. He says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. And already we, some of us see that word helper and it starts to cringe. Gets a little tight up in here. Because it's like, when we think of helper, we think of like the help, right? Like we think of like, okay, domestics and like people serving. And it's like, yo, this is not good news. I'm not happy about that. Now, my grandmother served as a domestic for 30 years. She did that to put food on the table for my mom and for my aunts and uncles. And that is noble work. And there's no shade on that at all. She did what she had to do and there's nobility in that. So that's not a problem. The problem is when it's limited to what that is. That's all you can be. That is the picture. That's your your options right there. And that is not what this is saying. Because you see, in the Hebrew, this word helper corresponding is azer kenegdo. 
And oh man, this is pregnant with meaning when you look into this word. This word, azer, actually says a helper that um, it has a connotation of military intervention. Okay, that's not impressive to you yet. All right, so there's 21 times that the word azer is used in the Old Testament. Two of them are right here in this chapter. Other six times, it's when Israel is asking for Azer for help from another nation militarily to bail them out. The other 16 times, it's referring to God himself being their help. Oh, so now we're starting to see what this means to be an image bearer, right? God is saying, Eve, I'm going to name you after me. See, in Psalm uh, 70, verse 5, it says, I am oppressed and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my azer, my help and my deliverer, Lord. Do not delay. And even when we see those things, like we sing the song, Be Thou My Ebenezer, Ebenezer, Eliezer. These are the, this word is, is identified with the sense of God being our sense of help. So and not, it's not looking like that. It's more looking like the door of Malaje, for real, for real. We really want to try to explain what this is. It's like fierceness in a dress that will cut you if you mess with her king. It, this, is, this is the imagery that, that is being evoked here because there is danger in the midst. And we see it in the text. In Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, at first, the blessing is where we get the blessed alliance from. God, he, he, he blesses them, he ordains them, he commissions them and says, now go out and be my image bearers. And just in case we're a little bit, slow or about what that means, he, he spells it out. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Quick question, who is he talking to here? Both of them. He's talking to Adam and Eve here. This is a commission. These are instructions to actually say, okay, now go ahead and do this. Now, when we look at these instructions, it's clear that be fruitful and multiply is not just about making babies. It extends beyond it. To see, that was what the rest of creation was like, yo, you know, be fruitful after your own kind, make a fish, make a bunch of fish, ducks, make a bunch of ducks. But there's this other element where he's saying, fill the earth, subdue it. And this mandate isn't simply about making babies, but about making a world that reflects the creator's glory. Because what did God do? He didn't just make image bearers. He made a world in order that they could flourish in. And he's saying, as my image bearers, this is what I want y'all to do together. And as I mentioned, there's a military context and connotation to this because there's danger lurking in the midst. We go out to get there in a second. But after creating Eve and seeing this, finally, God says in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. He saw and was like, it's complete. And Adam joins him in his celebration and refrain. See, we ain't got time to go there, but if you read the chapter, when Adam wakes up and sees Eve, the brother breaks out in song. He says, all of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges. That's what Adam was rolling with. He was excited. Because he saw something, he was like, yo, God, thanks for the hookup, G, for real. This is great. 
And I'm sure she saw him and sang a song too. (laughs) So we see that everything was good and everything was love. A king and a queen reigning together, dropping an album in the midst of when nobody is even expecting it. Everything was all love. This is what it looks like. (laughs) So what happened to the blessed alliance? What happened? Well, that leads to the second point. Sin damaged the blessed alliance. Instead of being representatives of God, they became representatives of themselves and of an ulterior plan. The relationship was severed and the responsibilities were abdicated. And almost before we get to fully indulge in this incredible blessed alliance and vision, trouble lurks around the corner right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we will learn as we go throughout this text that this is just not some random animal talking, but that Satan has entered the picture. We understand as we read the rest of Scripture that there's already been a rebellion at foot. And so this garden wasn't just this idyllic place that was just a bunch of, you know, peaches and and fruit walking around, but there was already an enemy that was opposed to their God. And for the first time in recorded history, there is a question about God's goodness. All the way up until this point in chapter 1 and chapter 2. God said it, it was good. God said it, it was good. God said it, it was very good. And now the question is, did God say it? And it's not good. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And it's a very subtle question because this question is deceptive in and of itself. Satan knows that he didn't say any tree because that would mean you would starve to death. But that's how Satan does. He paints a picture of something that you can't have and says, you can't have nothing. We got uh, to keep going. We got to keep going. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. So first, you have a rejection of what God said is true. Yeah, ain't, ain't nothing going to happen to you. He lying. And here's why he's lying. Here's the motivation. No, nope. in fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All of a sudden, the one who up until this point, they've been in complete cooperation with, again, we didn't get to go there today because it's too, too much territory to cover, but we see that God is walking with them in the cool of the day, complete intimacy and fellowship with their creator. And now all of a sudden that is being questioned and his very goodness is being undermined. And we still see that happening today. Satan is still saying to us today, did God really say you can't just steal something that don't belong to you? Did God really say you... Sex is for married people. I mean, you know, you know why he's saying that, right? Because, like, if you do that, then you're going to die. <laughs> like, this is unhealthy. This is destructive. You, there's, he's withholding something from you that you really should have. Did God really say you should forgive people that sin against you? I ain't say that. That's that old school stuff. We about revenge. We about fighting. So there's all of these ways in which these statements are being made. So it says the woman 
saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Notice up until this point, they were cool. They were fine with the limitations God said. It's not until somebody starts to ask these questions and surface these conspiracy theories that something even comes to mind. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Whoa, wait a minute. Hold on, time out. Who was with her? This conversation is happening while home dude is standing right there. Abdicating his responsibility and being passive as a man. Hold that thought. We're going to get to there a little bit later. So he ate it. And then it says the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And this idea of knowing isn't like they didn't know before. What it means is that all of a sudden shame has been uncovered because of the reality that they have now been rebellious. And this sewing fig leaves together is this attempt to uh, try to respond and, and try to cover themselves and fix the problem that they have created. And we see right away, God begins to ask some questions. First, he asks Adam, where are you? Because you're hiding from me. He says, well, I'm hiding because I'm naked. And then God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, pause again, time out. Now, you remember growing up when you did something you wasn't supposed to do? Like, let's say, you know, you were supposed to like, uh, I don't know, there was a piece of cake in there that was supposed to be for like an outing that was going to happen that, you, you know, somebody had baked in the house before then. And somehow, mysteriously, there was a slice missing when mom got home. And, and she's like, um, so what happened to the cake? And this is the moment of truth because she already knows what happened to the cake. But this is really, this, what has happened now, you've been transported into the downtown court district with the honorable judge mom presiding. And this is an opportunity for you to plead. How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? And more often than not, to our own demise, we, um, I don't know what happened to it, right? In which case, the judge would then become the lawyer and then rip our alibi to shreds, and then oftentimes rip us to shreds too. But the idea here is that God isn't asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. It's an opportunity to fess up, to respond, and to make things right. But look at what happens instead. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate. Whoa, wait a minute, bro. You were just singing John Legend a moment ago about this. Now all of a sudden it's her fault. And we can relate to this because it still manifests itself today. We still tend to blame the victim. We still tend to ask the question, well, what was she wearing when she got assaulted? Is it, I mean, clearly he didn't mean to do anything wrong. He was just sitting in an Uber. Like, he didn't mean to grab anybody sexually or do something inappropriate? Like, these are the questions and the theories that all of a sudden still come to, uh, come to play when we start to do this blame-shifting thing. And this is the introduction and beginning of where we see the effects of sin in the story. We see it play itself out. And so, 
The reality about sin is it's not, it doesn't manifest itself equally into all parts. And so while the fall has impacted all of us, there is this sense in which the ramifications have impacted women in a dynamic and specific way in particular because of this thing called patriarchy. We wanna talk about that and break that down as we go through this series. But what we need to seek to understand is that he blames her, she blames the serpent, nobody takes responsibility, and then there's this curse that is pronounced on them. These consequences to sin. But in play, we also see the struggle for power works to destroy the blessed alliance. This is what happens. We start to take sides and see each other. And now all of a sudden, those who were the alliance are now the enemies facing off. Now we have to get into a place where we think, okay, you're the enemy. I need to protect myself against you. You're going after my virtue, you Jezebel. You're going after, you know, my sense of esteem, you do. Like, we have to just keep ourselves at, on guard. And unfortunately, even movements that seek to, uh, to rectify this can go astray because, as James mentioned in a, ser- a sermon a few uh, weeks ago, that what happens with people who are oppressed is that they tend to seek the solution is to find their oppression as well. I was talking to this woman who um, does a lot of great work with uh, activism and things like that. And she was telling, we were talking about feminism and how at its core, it's this response to, uh, to just, you know, the limitations that are, and the abuses that are put on women. But there's this aspect where, because there's a wide range of thought, and on the fringes at the, its extremes, some people look to actually replace patriarchy with matriarchy. Kind of like, okay, y'all got it wrong, so now the best thing to do is to get us in place, and now the future is female. Not, ex- not two, as some would say, but exclusively. And yet, the gospel has a better response to us. But this story plays itself out even in our own children's stories. Y'all heard about Peter Pan we see this thing plays itself out is, you know, he was uh, the boy who never grew up. And Peter Pan, the kind of whole story is that he, he's in this far off place, Neverland, and, and he comes and visits the darling children who are in uh, England and, um, and kind of takes them and sweeps them up in their adventures. But the fascinating thing is that the relationship and the dynamic between Peter and Wendy also plays itself out in our day-to-day lives. What do I mean? Okay, let's take it one by one. First, we have Peter Pan syndrome. Now, this is a real psychology term. And Peter Pan syndrome, that is especially taking a lot of attention and notice now, has to do with boys who don't want to grow up. They don't want to take responsibility for their actions. They live in a state of perpetual adolescence. So one of the symptoms is they're unreliable. You ask them to be someplace, you ask them to do something, and they may be there, they may not be there. Who knows? They don't really are interested in finding a place of their own. They might live with their parents. Did you see the story about the dude who actually (laughs) tried to sue his parents for for like trying to say, you got to leave? Like he tried to sue his, his man was 35 years old, had a child, upstate New York, in this state and su- tried to sue his parents for saying, bro, you got to leave, you 35, dude. Like, it's time. And so, but we don't, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not 
trying to shade to shame people who, for you know, look, rent in New York is real. I, you know, I'm not, you know, trying to come at nobody's neck, but I am saying that there's a mentality that comes with the boy who never grew up. And we don't even just see it in these economic situations, but we also see it in the way that they interact with people. Because see, boys like to play with toys and have a fascination and an obsession with cars and material things, right? Like that's kind of what they're into. And they tend to treat people in a transactional way and look at girls as something beneath them. And have you ever noticed why in hip-hop there's so many dudes that go by Lil and Young? Lil Uzi Vert. You know what I mean? Like Lil John, Lil, like Lil Young Thug. Why is it? There's this aspect. They're telling us right there, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. This is where I want to stay. Like, this is, I don't want to have responsibilities. I'd rather sing to you about Molly and Percocet and how I'm just going to just escape to Never Never Land because I don't want to deal with the reality of responsibilities. So this is, this, is, this is kind of like the backdrop of what's there in the culture. You ever see a dude that's old enough to be a grandfather catcall a woman? It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, but it's this aspect, you, you never grew up. This is what Pastor Eric Mason said about manhood in, in his book, Manhood Restored. Great book. He says, without the fatherhood of God driving our manhood, we become mad scientists as we destructively experiment with those in our charge. It's like this idea of like, okay, we're in a lab, and it's like, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a sexual libido, and then I'm going to mix that with like some gold chains, and then I'm going to put that with like a, a Lambo, and boom, I'm a man. And this is the, the, the sense of directionlessness we have when we try to define the sense of masculinity and manhood by our culture's terms, by who we can get and what we can conquest. But God tells us a different story in the Blessed Alliance. So the interesting thing, and uh, Disney did a, a sequel to uh, Peter Van called, you know, Returns to Neverland, right? And it's this interesting moment because Peter is mad at Wendy because Wendy is now grown, got, is married, got kids, got responsibilities. And he's like, come on, let's go play. And she's like, uh, dude, no, like, I got stuff to do. And, and there's a sense of frustration with the fact that she grew up. But the other consequence to this Peter Pan syndrome is a Wendy syndrome. Can I talk to the ladies for a second? Now, again, I, I just looked. This is actual. I didn't, I'm not making this up. Okay, so don't come at me. <laughs> Wendy syndrome manifests itself in an absolute need to satisfy others. This behavior is due to the fear of rejection and abandonment. And for cultural reasons, is more common in women than in men. So in other words, there's this element where Wendy gets caught into this thing where she kind of likes the fact that the bad boy is there and she got to kind of be responsible for him so she can kind of rehabilitate this dude. And begins to lower her own expectations about what's acceptable for herself because she's a fear, she's afraid of abandonment. This is what Shaniqua Walker Barnes has said in her book, Too Heavy a Yoke. The critical issue for women is servanthood at the expense of selfhood. 
So now again, what this means is that, and we see this even in the church, where, you know, someone will continue to give and, you know, be on three different ministries doing five different things and don't have any time. And then it's like, well, I'm just serving the Lord. It's like, sis, no, you just don't have enough value of yourself to realize you need space and time. So you need you to take off the cape, superwoman, and realize that God came to save you too, and you need rest as well. This is actually manifesting itself in health issues, especially for women and people of color, where because of this lack of care, there's not a sense of uh, own, enough ownership of, of actually taking time away to, 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 to rest and to be alone. But then it looks in its most crazy way of somebody that's staying in unhealthy, toxic relationships with somebody because she feels like she doesn't want to be abandoned. So the question is, which fig leaves are you wearing? You see, the fig leaves are the things that we use to cover up <laughs> what it is that we try to, you know, try to find our sense of esteem and identity in ourselves. We all have them. Well, how is this blessed alliance restored? The good news is we have an answer. Jesus restores the blessed alliance. And it's right there in the text. We don't have to go too far. Even in the curses, God is pronouncing blessing. He's amazing like that. Because as we go down and, 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 and curses are pronounced on all who were involved in this rebellion against him, the first is to the serpent himself, and this is how we know it's Satan. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Oh, I wish I had time to get into all of this. But this is what theologians have for centuries called the proto-evangelium. Okay, that's Latin. What that means, proto-first, evangelium, gospel. This is the first picture of the gospel that we see. It is the first promise of a Messiah, of a Redeemer who's going to be there. You're like, I don't see all that. I just see God talking to a serpent. Okay, look, check it out. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. Interesting that the Redeemer is going to come from the woman. And he keeps emphasizing her part in this. But in any case, in between your offspring and her offspring, he says, there's going to be beef. Now this war has taken to another level since you have now entered into earth and had that be the battle zone of your rebellion. So I am now going to be at odds with you and I'm going to bring, look at this, he will strike your head, talking about the woman's offspring, and you will strike his heel. There's going to be a fight, but as you can see, a heel strike is a flesh wound, but a strike to the head is a death wound. And this is what we see in the gospel. Look at how Paul picks up this idea in the book of Colossians. He says that about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Through him, all things were created for him, by him, and through him. So what he's saying is that Jesus was there at the beginning in this creation account and that he is the full, complete image of God that is, was lost and broken in Adam and Eve, and he came through them. But it doesn't end there because in Colossians chapter 2, he says that Jesus put triumph over Satan by putting him to shame, by nailing the sins of us, the debt was paid in full on the cross. He crushed his head because what was the expectation? What was the thing that Satan had as his weapon against us? It was accusation. It was the fact that we were guilty of breaking God's law and he was always going in court to accuse us. And now Jesus has now sacrificed himself and has destroyed the power that he had over anyone who would identify with that. 
Oh, y'all not getting this, because if you did, you'd be shouting right now. But let me give you some more. Galatians chapter 2, it says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You go, okay, clothed. What's the deal with that? Remember those fig leaves? Well, after God saw their failed, paltry attempt to try to clothe themselves, it says right there in the account in Genesis chapter 3 that he clothed them with the skins of an animal. Now, if you're wearing leather shoes, right, and you're wearing a fur coat, then what happened in order for you to get those belongings? An animal had to die. There had to be sacrifice for them to be killed. God says, no, your little ways of working your own sense of salvation isn't going to work. I am going to provide for you a sacrifice. And now in Galatians, he's saying, I'm clothing you with Christ because this is the way that the salvation is going to come to pass. But that's not it. It says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. All of the ways that were this, this harmony had entered into the blessed alliance. Jew and Gentile, there was conflict and there was animosity. There was anti-Semitism in that. He says, now that's not going to matter. Slave or free, this sense of oppression and the sense of power and privilege and poor and rich. He's saying, I'm going to demolish those barriers. And then male and female, I'm going to save the best for last. Now, in Christ, we are all one, that these things are brought into Hermes. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Adam's, look at his seed, same word as offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this is why we know this is not just talking about a physical, somebody just having children. Because we ain't related to Abraham, most of us in here, and you know what I mean? Like, but yet we identify with Abraham because of faith. It says Abraham is our father in the faith. The work that he accomplished through his child, we get access to by faith. This is the, the very foundation of the gospel. This is why we have hope and have a better story to tell. Carolyn Custer James put it this way. God never intended for men to do the work of the church alone without their sisters. We need to celebrate the strength of the Azers in our midst. We need to give them opportunities to show their strength and to be a part of this battle. Because you know, the, the interesting thing is when there's a fire in the house, no one stops to ask whose role is it to put the fire out? There's somebody that's struggling and is caught up in sex trafficking right now. They're not asking, are you a complementarian? Are you an egalitarian? They're asking, are you coming here to help me? And we have to have this mentality and this perspective where we realize there's more than enough work for all of us to do together and that we're better together than we are apart. I get to experience this on a day-to-day -day basis. If you've ever, <laughs> any message I've done, uh, my wife Tamika has probably heard two or three times and given me feedback, significant feedback in putting it together. Anything I've done that I, I've been able to do ministry in ministry well, she's been there supporting and being with me. I wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for the blessed alliance that we've experienced. But in addition to that, we get to see this play out in the church here at Bridge in many ways. Now, we're going to talk throughout the rest of this series about how this impacts work in our lives, whether we're married or single. Um, but right now, I want to focus on us as a church, as a community. And the reality is that as, from the very beginning, our vision, and um, James will talk about it all the time, that you know, it was like, yo, at, at first, day one at Bridge, it was like me, Liz, and Yvonne. That was the leadership team. You know, that was who was there. And um, 
And so in our city groups in particular, uh, our city groups, for those who, who don't know, that's they, kind of like the core of our identity of where growth happens. And we have this vision of seeing this be the place that this gets lived out um, in, our, in our congregation. Because we realize that we're better together. And so communities that needs to happen and be informed by, by that. So our city group leaders, we always have a, a man and a woman leading those city groups. And this is the most probably essential role in our church in terms of our growth and development. I got a chance to lead a city group this uh, time around in Bushwick with Kendra. And uh, let me tell you about that experience. Now we kind of came into this from two very different perspectives or two different backgrounds. Like I've been on doing full-time ministry for 18 years, led a lot of different small groups and Bible studies and things among peers. This was like her first time doing it among peers. And so there was a little bit of trepidation uh, on her end at first. But in any case, what I gained in those first few weeks as she had been a part of that uh, group before was a sense of her enthusiasm, a sense she had an incredible sense of intuition and knowing what it was that needed to be said and done, even if it went off the script. She had great instincts for that. Um, but also as I saw her enthusiasm, it gave me a drive to be like, okay, I need to have that same kind of fervor that you had. And I noticed how I was able to speak into her and kind of give her some confidence where she was lacking, say, no, you're able to do this. And sometimes even push her to kind of lead some studies and ask some questions sometimes. But we were able to grow together in the midst of that. Also in our city group, we saw incredible things. I'll just give you a couple of the highlights, but our city groups are not just about what happens in the Bible studies, but also outside of that. Um, and so they're going on outings and roller skating and, and ministry and whatnot. And one of these instances, I love this picture of Zane uh, actually tying her s s laces, roller skating. It's this picture of, cause see in the gospel, Jesus said, oh, you wanna know what leadership looks like? He put a towel around himself and washed the disciples' feet. And he said, this is what you do. This is what leadership looks like. We also got to see Mike and Kiara and Brandon and Kendra serve these kids in young life, this, this high school and middle school ministry and actually plant seeds in all of them building off of each other. This is what it looks like. The blessed alliance calls for mutual flourishing. We all have to bear with each other. And sometimes we have to be patient because, we, because there's a tendency in our culture to call out the Peter Pan syndrome in the guys or to call out the windy tendencies in the girls as if we're not all in the process of growing. And I can testify that as somebody that grew up without my father in the house, that it was a struggle for me for a long time to feel a sense of confidence about what it meant to be a man. And when I got married, a husband and a father, that wasn't easy. But because of the patience of my Azer, and I got a bad one, um, I was able to work through that. So we're gonna continue this conversation um, in a discussions uh, and that, that have come. On July 10th at seven o'clock, we're gonna have the Blessed Alliance discussion uh, here. And this is a corporate opportunity for us to, this will be kind of three quarters of the way through a series for us to really talk about how do we have this kingdom mindset and live together and work through the different things that how we see each other, the levels of disrespect or distrust that might be there and how can we support each other as brothers and sisters. Last thing I wanna ask you, and this is kind of some homework for the week, is I want you to ask someone two questions. 
and especially someone on the other side of the Blessed Alliance from you. How have you seen or experienced division and damage to the Blessed Alliance? And in what ways have you experienced God's plan for the Blessed Alliance personally? I want you us to think about this because it's gonna take time. I mean, we're gonna do this series and I know God is gonna do his thing, but we also have to bear with each other and be patient and, and know that we are growing together, but that we are better together than we are apart, amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that this thing, this male and female unity and kingdom work, this strategy is not our idea, but it was your idea from the very beginning. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, as we go through this series, inspect our hearts. God, show us where we have propped up fig leaves that um, try to cover our weaknesses and our frailty, God. And Lord, even when we try to um, just be a hero or a heroine instead of depending on you, uh, Lord, would you show where we might need to offer forgiveness and extend it to those who have hurt us, um, but also where we need to care for ourselves in ways deeper than we've taken, uh, we've done so far. Would you meet us here in these next few weeks and will we be an indication and a signpost to the world that there's a better story to be told? than the one that's told out there. We commit this to you in Christ's name.